Hey again, we're back. Welcome to Film Suck, a Patreon podcast in which we ponder the work of art in the age of crap cinema. I'm Eileen Jones. I'm Dolores McElroy. And thanks, as always, for listening. Uh, this is just a reminder that today's episode marks the last of our free January series. But we still always offer half of our episodes for free. Um, or if you can subscribe, you can hear them all at patreon.com slash filmsuck. Today, we're going to consider the image of fascists on film, which is, you know, an unfortunately timely issue motivated in part by the killer clown antics of the, what do we want to call them, would-be fascist insurrectionists, I don't even know what, what term, we've never settled on one, um, who stormed the Capitol building on January 6th. Um, like a lot of people, we were wondering what the hell they thought they were doing, and uh, perhaps even even slightly more, what the hell they thought they were wearing. <laughs> um, and especially now that that image of Q Shaman, um, aka Jake Angeli, um, has has just become embedded in public memory. He was the guy in the in the in the giant fur hat <laughs> and the weird vest with, and the hat with the horns. So that's he's the most striking image. But of course, there's also the the very very bearded. Camp camp out switch uh, T-shirt with staff on the back, and there was a whole host of very odd um, outfits. So we're gonna we're going to talk a bit about that. So some questions we'll be considering today include um, why are the Nazis in particular? Uh, we're going to be talking about fascism in general, but Nazis in particular, um, whose professed ideology was anti-art anti-intellectual thuggery, why are they frequently portrayed as highly cultured dandies in the movies? And if we consider the dapper Nazi villains of Hollywood as part of a continuum with this, like, Germanic tribe cosplay of the QAnon <laughs> writers, um, the question is, is there such a thing as a fascist aesthetic? Yeah, and and just regarding that, the very topical angle that we're 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 flogging here. Yeah. <laughs> um, a friend of ours came up, Emily, actually, who helps out with the podcast. Thanks, Emily. Thank you, Emily. Um, yeah, thank you, Emily. She came up with a really interesting article. Um, it was an uh, an NBC news piece um, on 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 those crazed outfits, and it was very interesting because the argument being made by historian um, Elaine France, who's who's being interviewed and kind of quoted throughout the article. Um, she wrote, and it's mainly from her essay, which is called Midnight Rangers, Costume and Performance in the Reconstruction Era Ku Klux Klan. She argues, and I'll just quote her, um, uh, that uh, early Klansmen, before they settled on the, you know, the, 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 the hood and the white hood and robes that we were all familiar with, early Klansmen wore something far more similar to the hodgepodge we saw on display at the Capitol last week. Animal horns, fur fake beards, homemade costumes that drew on traditions of carnival or Mardi Gras, masks, pointy hats, polka dots. Um, and for, you know, there's a further quote in the article of France who also made, wrote a book um, about the birth of the KKK, which is called Ku Klux, the birth of the Klan during Reconstruction. That's, you know, the, the post-Civil War period, of course. The parallels between the appearance of 19th century Klansmen and the January 6th rioters were impossible to ignore. And she goes on to speculate, you know, how much... Can we be confident that they actually knew what they were doing? Are they somehow just tapping into a vein of, <laughs> of you know, white supremacist terrorism that goes back, goes back to the immediate post-Civil War um, era mm -hmm. and was dominant? It's not that they didn't wear hoods. They did wear, you know, sometimes they had the little hoods, but they didn't have the complete outfit till, and this is, this is important for cinematic history, till guess when? Hmm. Where, where do we get that horrifying uniform of the Klansman <gasps> white robe and hood? 
the 1915 film Birth of a Nation. Oh, man. Which is, yeah, which is well known, of course, for sparking a, a real, a serious resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan. But I, I did not realize that, you know, they portray in a, a historically highly inaccurate way, you know, uh, in the movie, the arriving at that at those outfits. And then, of course, there are, you know, climactic scenes of the Ku Klux Klan riding to the rescue. It's a real horror show film, of course. Um, but I had no idea that the, that the robes, the uniform, sparked also that, that that's what that's what became the, the almost the regulation wear after the the movie, which was an enormous hit. This makes so much so, sense. Of course, it's Hollywood that like codified and invented. <laughs> yes. And, and it's yes. true. It's like this made up like a vision. It's like a medieval vision mm-hmm. of, you know, or or like, a, sorry, a 19th century vision of medieval times, you know, like mm-hmm. a, a medieval mm-hmm. knight would wear or something like that. Right. And I feel like that's this right. is so this is so central to fascism because so many of these fascist movements are uh, obviously they are directly tied to nationalism and like fervent, you know, over the top nationalism. And of course, all nations are invented. And so you mm-hmm. always have to, if you're like forging a nation um, or, you know, you have to make up some kind of ancient lineage and this is exactly what the Nazis did, you know, with their mm-hmm. Aryan race, which is like some made up hodgepodge of nonsense and myth uh, about mm-hmm. the origins of, of Germany, um, mm-hmm. which is not a country until the 19th century. Same with Italy. You know, they, they make up some like half baked Roman nonsense about how, you know, um, and of course, Italy has a little more claim to some kind of ancient lineage. But Italy wasn't Italy until the 19th century. It was, you know, a bunch of different kingdoms. And Rome had very little to do with like Venice, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. they always pull this shit. Where it's like <laughs> you just yeah. make up some weird ancient thing for yourself. And that's what Jake mm-hmm. the QAnon shaman did wearing all the, you know, indigenous mm-hmm. American garb. He like makes himself an ancient American lineage. And that's creepy right. as hell. And of course, the whole Norse, the whole Norseman, you know, Vikingy thing that was very popular, though it usually was in in kind of runic symbols. Mm-hmm. Um, the Nazis loved that too. They loved their runic symbols, <laughs> you know, with the two lightning bolts of the SS uniform, yep. especially. I was reading up on that, and you know, they they literally the Nazis came up with an extra key on their typewriters that had the double lightning bolt. <gasps> it meant, and each lightning bolt symbol supposedly meant victory. So it was like a rallying cry of victory, victory, but that they could do it in a single keystroke. They had a they had, good they had God their, and their typewriters. I'm just like, oh, you can go down the rabbit hole so easily trying to research any of this, which is what I've been doing for days. It's terrible. It's, I'm a fund of useless information. Now. No, it's fascinating. You know, I just saw there was an article maybe a year ago. I think it was in like. Princeton's alumni magazine, a school I did not go to. Uh, But someone sent me this um, because their classics department posed the question how to reclaim or basically keep the study of the classics, you know, Greece, Rome, Mm -hmm. whatever, out of the hands of the alt-right. Because all of these alt-right boys, proud boys and 4chan types Mm -hmm. are flocking to to the classics departments for this very reason, to fabricate some ancient lineage for their very contemporary, very 19th century derived bullshit, you know? Uh Um, So here we go again. (laughs) I know. Never never far from it. (laughs) No. It seems like. 
Yeah, yeah. And I have to say, like, so because there are so many very obvious similarities, I truly don't understand why people don't think that we can call these people who rioted on January 6th fascists. Mm -hmm. Like, people people went to the Capitol wearing Nazi t-shirts, said we're Nazis, (laughs) and we still can't compare them to the Nazis, you know? Like, at what point? No, it's Big, elaborate, serious, you know, I don't know how serious, but big, elaborate arguments being made. In fact, we chickened out in our description, I think, of this episode with me going, should we call them fascists? There's this whole thing going, why do I listen to online? It's insane. If the and we shoe wound up fits. calling them something. <laughs> well, then we should, we should articulate what the shoe is. Yeah. Like, what are the combination of stances, qualities, beliefs that, that make us say, yeah, this is fascism all over again? I mean, it's an, to me, what defines it is it's an investment in strength, dominance. You know, that's mm-hmm. like the unifying um, feeling is the dominance of the strong over the weak and a glorification of death. You know, mm-hmm. like not every country, I, I feel like it, it's not uniquely American, but it seems like um, a, a fascist canary in the coal mine if your country's always glorifying like it's dead sold the death you know like the death dying for your country is the like most glorious thing you can do to me that's like uh uh-oh we have a problem here like a good country doesn't want you to die for it that's not like the ultimate um uh thing that you can do in life but america's like for quite some time been like really invested in that idea and like that aesthetic Mm-hmm. And to me, and yeah, a kind of death culty quality that, yeah, when we get into talking about Lenny Riefenstahl and Triumph of the Will and even her her book of photography, The Last of the Nuba, mm-hmm. um, which is a Sudanese tribe that she studied and did photographs of, she, she traces it even to there. You move past a kind of racial line, which, you know, because she was Hitler's favorite, you know, uh, filmmaker and all the rest of it. She was fully embedded in Nazism. But she takes it over a racial line and still finds similar qualities. And one of them is a kind of absolute fixation on death mm-hmm. as central to the society. Yeah. It, exactly. And I, I mean, I'm kind of taking my idea of these definitions from Walter Benjamin, the you know mm-hmm. great um, cultural theorist from the early 20th century, um, who wrote the very famous The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. And he defines... Um, fascism as uh, when sort of all your aesthetics first he defines it as the aestheticization of politics which can look Mm -hmm. a lot of different ways and we'll talk about that but um that aestheticization of politics culminates in one point and that one point is war so Mm -hmm. if uh, you know if your whole look uh is sort (laughs) of geared towards war and war likeness that's Mm -hmm. fascism and, you know, it's similar. Sontag defines it similarly. She's she's looking at not only the films of Lenny Riefenstahl from the 30s, mm-hmm. which were made, you know, under and often for Hitler and the Nazi regime, um, but mm-hmm. also Riefenstahl's later photography in the 70s, which the intelligentsia and the glitterati tried to they tried to redeem her reputation, you know, mm-hmm. in the worst way. And she says, oh, no, she's not changed at all since the Nazi days. She loves the Nuba, which are these people um, in Africa who she photographed. Mm-hmm. And she said it, it's all about the, the you know, uh, games of dominance and submission and displays of strength. And, you know, subduing. Yeah, what did she say? Are the, are the- 
the t- in the in the among the nuba, the two most important ritualistic displays are wrestling, you know, very violent wrestling matches, and that's absolutely central. And funerals, mm-hmm. like so, and she makes the comparison of weddings. Weddings are nothing, you know. All of the other rituals that might be more dominant or 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 less in a whole variety of societies, you know, are very much downplayed in favor of those two. And so it does seem like, and she explicitly says you can do a triptych, Sontag. You can do a triptych of Riefenstahl, um, yes. acts in her life and works at the time, and and the 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 photograph, the later photography that's that's meant to and does for a while rehabilitate her image. The 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 films for Hitler, specifically the Nazi propaganda films, mm-hmm. and then before that, the films that she starred in. Um, and you can just go from one one to the next, saying, "Yep, same thing, same thing, same thing." Yeah, exactly. And, you know, she says what they have in common is these both of these cultures, Nazi and Nuba cultures, exalt mindlessness. You know, they don't want you to critique anything. They don't want you to intellectualize and they glamorize death. And that seems to me to be the aesthetic of these Trump rioters. You know, and you could also add one that it doesn't feature in with the Nuba, according to Sun for the Sontag's interpretation and she would know but um there's the, this kind of worship of a figure of a leader figure extremely authoritarian at, in which you invest kind of mythic strength and splendor so yes. triumph of the will being the best example you could ever get of that you're just constantly cross-cutting between or not cross-cutting you're cutting between hitler you know always in shots that are at low angles to elevate him he was a short dumpy not not handsome man <laughs> how are you going to make him into the all-important physical Aryan ideal it can't be done so she's got to be very very artful with all the immense resources she has at her command to try to make him as elevated as possible in one way so you just keep cutting from him riding along in his touring car or whatever he's doing and then to the just tens of thousands of amassed worships worshipers who are all sig heiling at exactly the same time in this kind of eerie unison and their faces are just transfigured by ecstasy at the very sight of him. Yeah. So that's a way <laughs> that you can, you know, make that work. What's, what's so impossible to make him look idealized and, and glorious and, and physically pure, which is a big fixation obviously of the Nazis and their art mm-hmm. um, or so-called art. <laughs> um, <laughs> but also that that just desire to have a messianic leader practically and you know that the the kind of worship the whole you know cue and on you know insane ready-made myth that they came up with that that trump was going to save us all from an international cabal of evil pedophile figures who had infiltrated all the heights of all the all the the realms of power democratic power left-wing power um that's that's just right out of it the insane kind of playbook that's very typical absolutely yeah making him almost a part of the architecture like this monumentalism Mm -hmm. and um but Mm -hmm. it i get we should say you know the masses taking form and you know becoming design this is um Mm -hmm. it's a feature of both fascist and communist art you know like if if you've seen any of those stalin films from the 1940s very similar um, like editing strategies are used not exactly the same like oftentimes stalin does come down into a crowd or the actor who plays stalin who looks right oh yeah Yeah, exactly (laughs) but it's yeah you know i think i guess we could say it's a it's common to like all totalitarian art right 
At least, yeah, that's a Sontag argument for sure, that there's these commonalities that you see again and again. She's, so she has to kind of, she has to do some work to try to parse out the specifics of fascism mm-hmm. from some of the shared in totalitarian societies you see similar, you know, weirdly idealized and generic and monumental and again, designing mass movement. So it's true. You could look at all sorts of societies and see the same kind of fetishizing of these kind of, you know, just parade displays of humanity as things (laughs) that are moving in unison in machine-like ways, that kind of thing. Yeah. Right. And yeah, and the idea is that you, uh, you know, obviously one of the aspects of this, um, I don't know, what would you, philosophy or fascist Mm -hmm. ideal is that, you know, you exist for the sake of the community, for the sake of the state. Mm -hmm. Um, And truly, I mean, it's difficult to parse right from left on that yet again. But I think the difference is that um, in, in fascism, critique is actively discouraged well um, and there's the blood and soil factor as well which yes. we've already kind of referred to the the absolute essentializing of your your national character into something that transcends <laughs> um yeah practically all known history so there's that factor that isn't doesn't seem to be in common absolutely you're so right the fictions of race are definitely yeah yeah. definitely not a part yeah no but but what's interesting is like so uh, you know uh we we've been reading a little bit about this figure from italian politics and this Mm -hmm. this is where the term proto-fascism is truly um legit that there's a poet who is much more than a poet. He was a politician. He was kind of an all-around Renaissance man at the turn of the 19th century. His name was Gabriele D'Annunzio. And um, he he inspired Mussolini. He inspired Marinetti, the guy who wrote the Futurist Manifesto. Mm-hmm. Uh, for people out there who know what futurism is, it's this really good-looking sort of art deco style. Um, Distressingly gorgeous. It, <laughs> considering like, where it's headed. Right. And it, you know, so it glorifies uh what would you say Eileen like machinery uh machinery war. speed war um yeah all the machinery that can can move fast and generate kind of fiery outbursts <laughs> yeah right. it's really beautiful <laughs> it is it's but gl- also full of destruction but it's, a, it's supposed to be a kind of creative destruction i guess yeah and it is it's that you know energy is a great way to put it it's full of all the energy of this moment the turn the turn of the you know 19th century into the 20th and it even you know it's kind of beautifully uh modernist it's a it's cubist influenced and influenced by cubism Mm -hmm. Uh, and you wouldn't look at this and think like oh yeah fascism um but anyway i i digress uh but denunzio predates the futurists even though he he inspired them and the weird thing about denunzio is he's very um we would think of him as decadence, like late 19th century decadence, this very style we were talking about in the Oscar Wilde episode. Right. Right. Art for art's sake. Yes. Art for art's sake again. Yeah. We're in trouble, Dolores. We're going to have to sort of at some point do a criticism, self-criticism session on our love of, of beauty, man, <laughs> art for art's sake, all that other stuff. 
Heads in a bad direction. But like, this is my, okay. But this is my <laughs> whole like question. I think we think it heads in a bad direction because of the way that history went. Um, mm-hmm. And like, we'll talk about Denunzio in a hot second. And the way that the Marxist critics like Benjamin and the rest of the Frankfurt School and Gramsci mm-hmm. wrote about these guys. And they were justified. <laughs> yeah. but, but let's remember, like, there's no, I don't think there's any reason the art for art's sake aesthetic needs to develop into fascism, which is the the line that's the narrative that has been told by the academy right. but like remember right. oscar wilde was a socialist you know mm-hmm. i mean and uh, oscar's like steeped in this so you know basically denunzio oscar they're all reading the same stuff they're reading walter mm-hmm. pater on the renaissance they're reading i don't i never know how to pronounce this guy's name it looks like isman or heisman he's the one who wrote arabor um which translates mm-hmm. to against nature a very very famous um french decadent novel Everyone's reading Baudelaire. Um, mm-hmm. And by the way, it's, I don't think we said this last time, it's Gautier mm. who coined art for art's sake, uh, mm. l'art pour l'art um, in French, right? Mm-hmm. Which MGM hilariously stole as it's stole from their la- motto. Put into Latin. <laughs> like it's, into Latin. <laughs> never, it's never not funny. Right. But once again, it's that same move. It's like that birth of a nation KKK mm-hmm. move. It's like MGM invents an ancient lineage for itself but by latinizing a 19th century idea (laughs) this is like what happens every time (laughs) 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 okay so denunzio is important because he's he writes uh uh, he writes a lot he's a very he's not a bad poet and this is you know like riefenstahl he's one of those figures who really complicates like hey can good artists do bad things like of course they can you know, mm-hmm. like we have Wagner, we have, we have you know, <laughs> lots of really good artists um, are re- have really suspect politics. And Denunzio was, you know, he was uh, he was a huge narcissist. Um, he was a lot of things, but he saw the world in he, he was a true esthete and he he wanted to see a poetic vision come to life. So he invaded a small city called right. Fiume. Yeah. <laughs> And he holds it for like a more than a year or something. A couple years. Yeah. (laughs) A couple years. Yeah. And it's in order to realize his vision of what like a fully aesthetically glorious city would look like. And he, uh, you know, he's he's invested in building the myths of Italy, which is a new nation. Mm Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it maybe it bears repeating that Italy is just it was just a series of different kingdoms ruled by different fighting powers throughout the years, you know, from the Greeks to the Romans fighting to, uh, you know, the the Bourbon kings, Napoleon, the the Austrians mm-hmm. who held a lot of power in the north. You know, it's a total hodgepodge. And, mm-hmm. as you know, people from the north can't really understand people from the south, blah. So they had to invent a country just like Germany did, just like the United mm-hmm. States did. And mm-hmm. he's he thought that the best way to do this was through war. And mm-hmm. this is where he has everything in common with Mussolini, with Marinetti, with Hitler, is mm-hmm. that he thought like the the glory of the nation um, and even the full aesthetic promise of the age could mm-hmm. only be realized through war. Mm-hmm. So he but the, the difference is in the in the details like his his city was uh, um by our eye, like very f- feminine, you know, he had like these, he would change the flowers on his balcony three times a day. 
<laughs> you know, he like the the. So the, his Oscar Wilde side, because Wilde was super into flowers, especially lilies and all that, would come out. <laughs> you know, in other words, exactly yeah, the flower thing. <laughs> because he also designed the black shirts uniform for his for his enforcers who would be out on the streets. He's the one. At least what I read, and I only know a smidgen compared to you. Supposedly, he's the one who comes up with the look. Okay, I did not know that. <laughs> so oh, that's really? amazing. Oh my god, yeah. maybe I'm reading the wrong sources, but that's what it said. It said that he came up with the balcony address, like all this spectacle stuff. Exactly. That gets taken up by Mussolini. He does the balcony address, he does the kind of Roman salute thing. He do, and he, and then he's given credit for coming up with the black shirt look of his enforcer thugs in the street. So Oh my god. Okay, so I probably haven't got I want it to be true. Research. <laughs> Right. I am by no means an expert and I haven't even gotten to the end of this biography. Um, <laughs> but he, and meanwhile, I'm cheating by reading online crap. So you probably know more than me. No, you're, you're probably right. I, I do know when he first invaded the uniforms of probably not the like enforcer soldiers, but, you know, the army um, of his mm. town. It was this beautiful hearkening back to the to the uniforms of Garibaldi's men. And they mm. were I think they were like design like made in Paris. <laughs> so wow. it was like blue and, and red silk, you know, like truly wow. like a gorgeous display. And he did call himself Duce. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, and of course, Mussolini, uh, Mussolini and Marinetti were in the crowds that he whipped up in May of 1915, which mm-hmm. was a big moment when um, the Italians wanted to uh, did not want to fight um, in World War One. But Denunzio said, no, they're cowards. Um, you have to rally against your government because it's time for Italy to prove itself. And he loved to use the word Holocaust. He said, mm-hmm. you know, I like it. We need to cauterization by fire, a holocaust, a great outpouring of mm-hmm. blood to purge the stench of corruption. And he was such a good poet and orator that the the people rose up on his behalf. Like they wanted mm-hmm. to fight because he made it sound gorgeous. Um, right. And this is a, I mean, I don't even know if that's like specific to Italy. Like like the promise yeah. of beauty, we will we'll enter the war because this is, right. it could be go so, back. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but it's it, it is. But he puts a new a nice spin on it. He puts a spin on it that can be taken up. We can put it that way. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But it is kind of strange because although he certainly aestheticizes politics, and mm-hmm. although he certainly does understand the culmination of this aesthetics as war, and that fits mm-hmm. all the definitions of fascism, and I believe he also coined the term fascism. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Which means uh, it's a bun. Yes, actually, he did. Um, It means it's kind of like a bundle of wheat, fasci Mm -hmm. in in Italian. And uh, D'Annunzio remembers seeing he he went to uh, some of the battlefields of the First World War and he saw um, a bunch of corpses assembled and uh, kind of strung up together on the battlefields in a way that resembled the, these oh. bundles of wheat. Yes. Um, yeah. And so those oh. were the fasci. And I don't uh, I really need to review why that's a desirable thing to call yourself. Um, but, you know, for him, it was just, uh, again, kind of like seeing some kind of aesthetic promise in in war. Uh huh. Um, right. So here we have it. <laughs> but because it marries such a productive thing as a harvest. Yes. With, you know, war. And I sort of like, you know, the, the what is it? The tree of liberty. And like, it's got to be watered with the blood, blood of patriots. And it's that kind of, you know, you get this nourishment from, yes. you know, yeah, yeah. The bodies. Yeah. 
Definitely. So, so yeah, so it's, you know, it's, it's very disturbing. Um, He didn't, it's interesting because like later he certainly didn't, he thought Hitler was an idiot and he didn't like Mussolini. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't really know. It's not like he was um, avowedly anti-Italian fascist by the time Mussolini Mm -hmm. took power. You know, he wasn't. Um, He didn't. He was a critic. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, yeah. But and Mussolini gave him great gifts at the end of his life, you know, like a uh, half a battleship to keep on his property, all kinds of crazy mm-hmm. shit. Um, mm-hmm. But it is kind of interesting if we are thinking about like actual forms, his style, mm-hmm. which is very kind of well, we would think of it. Our short term for it would be like Art Nouveau, kind of organic, mm-hmm. you know. Um, almost like plant forms, very like, mm-hmm. you know, sexy and beautiful. Um, that doesn't yes, curvy and elaborate and gorgeous, still gorgeous. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. That doesn't match with our deco. Our notions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> our like mm. faux Imperial Rome thing that we associate mm-hmm. with like Mussolini and, and Hitler. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm going to stop talking for a second, but just like, um, just in terms of film, if anyone's interested, it's kind of hard to find these. But Eileen and I saw an example of the Italian diva genre, which Denunzio almost single-handedly like influenced. Because um, he did the script for Cabiria, which I didn't know. At least I read somewhere. It's, and I yeah. was like, how is that possible? He also did that. He did too many damn things. My God. He did, it was a true renaissance, man. Oh, man. Yeah. And he, uh, uh, so this, this diva genre was, I would say it went from about... 1914 to like, no, oh, I don't know, 1922 or something. It was short lived, mm-hmm. but very popular. And a lot of these films were adapted from his poetic works or his um, novels. And mm-hmm. Eileen and I saw at the Castro Theater as part of the San Francisco Silent Film Festival, Festival um, Rhapsodia Satanica. Which you, you gotta see, um, <laughs> and it, yeah, yeah it, they, I mean the films don't have overt political messages. They're films about women. They're films about women who are really emotive for reasons that are not always plausible. <laughs> like, like my favorite moment from any diva film is um, there's an actress named Pina Menichelli, and she's in a movie called Tigre Real, and she goes to the opera. And she sees this performance and she's so overcome by it. She's sitting in the back of her carriage on the way home with a bouquet of roses and she just starts eating them because she's like, wow. just like so overcome with emotion. And so I, and these movies, I mean, they're fabulous, you know, um, mm-hmm. they, they're very hard to get in the U.S. But if you want to YouTube them, the actresses mm-hmm. are Lita Borelli. Francesca Bertini and Pina Menichelli mostly there are others but they're like the three main stars and they're so beautiful and you know Art Nouveau looking and they're so expressive and they're usually tortured and it you know it ends badly they're they're usually melodramas um and so it's very hard to like find the crypto fascism here but that's what all those Marxist critics like uh, you know, uh, all of the Frankfurt School and especially mm-hmm. Benjamin um, really railed against. And Gramsci hated these films. But you know what's tricky is that mm-hmm. usually the condemnations are like so obviously misogynist. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like it's really not about I like everything that's womanly or based mm-hmm. on female express- uh, expressiveness is bourgeois. 
to these critics, you know, (laughs) and that's a problem Uh (laughs) because Mm. um, they're also kind of like liberating and amazing just for women to even have a place to be so expressive, um, Mm -hmm. to be the center of a a very, you know, a complex narrative with a complex interior life. Like how often does that happen, especially in the early 20th century? Not very often. Well, yeah, and especially isn't the isn't the diva figure just fundamentally transcendent? Like something about them—they're either either their art or just the beautiful purity of their of their expression. I like to think so, (laughs) but I I thought that was the thing. That's why the diva is such an outsized figure. Oh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I've just been listening to you. (laughs) You've just been hanging out. That's my party line. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean Benjamin really took on not precisely these films, but he did. He mentions Denunzio in the in his in the first draft of the work of art in the age of or the first publication of the work Mm -hmm. of art in the age of mechanical reproduction. And um, Gramsci hates the divas, in particular Lita Borelli. And all of his hatred mm. is really mixed up with uh, his misogyny. <laughs> He's always like, okay. she can only play herself. She is a pythoness giving birth. <laughs> like, <laughs> she's representative of some primordial humanity. You're like, that's, you got to think harder about this. Uh, yeah. Um, I don't know. So, but it is harder. You're right to trace that to how, how does that relate? But it, it seems like you're right. There has to be something. There's what's the connection to the larger fascist aesthetics, which are hard to grapple with anyway. Like, how is it even a step toward? Like, is it the, oh, go ahead. Well, no, I, I mean, my, and like, maybe you can argue against this. Mm. My, oh, no, but, <laughs> no, but my feeling is like, <laughs> I, I don't think there is such a thing as a fascist aesthetic. I, I think oh, the, that's such a relief. Cause every time I read it, I'm like, I, you're losing me again. I'm starting to think like everything, everything that's aesthetic is a fascist aesthetic. It's very hard. Yeah. I, I, or like, I, I, let me put it this way. I don't think there, maybe that's not exactly what I want to say. I don't think there's such a thing as fascist form. Mm-hmm. I, I think whether or not your aesthetic is kind of, uh, you know, late 19th century curly cues and Art Nouveau, mm-hmm. or whether it's a deco faux imperialism or real imperialism, mm-hmm. um, it doesn't really matter. Uh, I think that the, you know, the, what matters is, is the aim of, or is what your aesthetic glorifies, um, Mm -hmm. war. And if it does Mm -hmm. glorify war, then you might be a fascist. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, uh, that's, I don't know. That's my hot take. What do you think? (laughs) (sighs) That's a tough one. (laughs) I don't know. Cause I keep wanting it to be like, no, there's a, there's a rather complex constellation of qualities that if you get them together, that's fascist art, but I might be just being cowed by what I read because you know the the there's a it seems like from what I read there's a tendency to want to say we're we're way oversimplifying this so that you see fascism everywhere, um, where it actually has to involve these these combined qualities, and it seems like Sontag's essay, which is you know probably the most famous fascinating fascist mm-hmm. or one of the most famous pieces on um, fascist aesthetics. Seems like it's doing that. And that's how she can trace among what seems to be very, very different works of art, mm-hmm. you know, that are done by um, uh, Riefenstahl, Lenny Riefenstahl, to say, here it is, here it is, here it is, because you see this, this, and this, and it's all in all these different forms. Yeah. Yeah. And she can trace it to the, the Nazi uniforms, and she can trace it to, you know, she can, she can keep spreading it because she can keep saying, we see these, whatever, five to ten things in operation again here. You know, this is how you don't you don't wind up 
rehabilitating Riefenstahl when it seems like she does something completely different, which is the photographic study of the Nuba. It might superficially look different. It's it's same thing again. Yeah. I, Maybe I, she's overconvinced me. I don't know. No, I compl- I agree with Sontag. I think, you know, if, mm-hmm. if it's about dominance and submission, if it's about the strong versus the weak, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if it glorifies death. If there's an, a huge overemphasis, which she mentions again with the Nuba, you know, a real obsession with physical perfection. Yes. She insists on that and, and you're and you're fetishizing it. You're making it this your subject in a in a in a in an obsessive kind of way. Because you know, that's one of the leading you know, there's so much sculpture um generated by, say, the Nazis, and it's all so boring. <laughs> oh, <laughs> because God. it all looks like, you know, not not that great statues of Olympians that you'd see during the Olympics or something. It's all they're all very generic because they have to be perfect. Right. They can't have any blemishes. They can't have any humanizing qualities. Yeah, and, when, you know, so much of the stuff they love is like that. It, totally. Yeah. When the what is it? The the beautiful is synonymous with the healthy. Yes. Know? Yeah. And that has to take the form of a kind of idealized, um, out of all <laughs> notion, and and huge. It has to have this kind of huge, mythic, transcendent um, quality that has to ignore all human frailty, because otherwise, you know, what are we aiming for here? So everything has to be constantly reinforcing. And valorizing this key set of beliefs. So even your, even your paintings of the folk, um, farmers or your German women with their children, they still have to have this quality of, you know, the almost generic because they have to represent an ideal mm-hmm. and they have to be representing values that we care about over and over and over. Yeah, I think I think you're right. And OK, at the risk of I don't want to like open a whole can of worms, but I think that um if we That's keep probably good, we only have you know twenty five minutes or something. Shit <laughs> balls. <going>. Okay. <laughs> you know what? Never mind. We can go a little over. Oh okay. no, we can go. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, okay. I just I wanted to say I think the the mm-hmm. danger is like um, sometimes the left valorizes the folk, and I don't mean that in terms of the German oh, like Vulcan. Yeah, I. But you know we 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 valorize folk culture like, and you could think of mm-hmm. this as like what folk music. Um, I don't know, things that spring up, quote, spontaneously in, you know, certain subcultures, Mm -hmm. you know, these things are the art that is not suspect um, in -hmm. terms of the left. Um, Mm -hmm. This is the problem, (laughs) I think, is that we live in like a, a society with if not mass media anymore, we are are heavily mediated. Um, mm-hmm. All of our forms, I, really all of them, are produced under capitalism, whatever mm-hmm. form of art you're making. And mm-hmm. uh, Richard Dyer has a great argument about this in a very uh, not well-known article for Gay Left magazine that he wrote in 1979 called mm-hmm. In Defense of Disco. And mm-hmm. it's just about the way that, you know, kind of like all the leftist bros, even in the 70s, hated on anything glitzy, um, mm-hmm. glamorous. And I think mm-hmm. it comes from this tradition of suspecting things that are, um, you know, could be mistaken for the aestheticization of politics or the glitz and mm-hmm. glam of, you know, any anything from the U.S. war machine 
to the to the fascist dictatorships in Europe to even back to Denunzio. You know, too flashy is suspect. Only organic forms, like as if they spring from the soil or some shit, which they don't. Mm-hmm. They spring from humanity, my friends, um, which mm-hmm. <laughs> like lives in capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's mm-hmm. like, you know, this is short sighted. And your folk music that you listen to, do you think that's not produced under capitalism? <laughs> do you think <laughs> right, that Bob right. Dylan just like sprung out of the earth? You know, <laughs> like that. No, I like I love Bob Dylan. And I love folk music. I also love disco. You know, I'm not talking about the forms themselves. It's just that the left mm-hmm. tends to devalue the glamorous and to look at mm-hmm. it as suspect, I think, for because of this history of thought. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that if we stick to the the like criteria that Sontag lays out and don't think that mm-hmm. we know fascism, you know, just by glamour, um, mm-hmm. that we're safer in our in our definition. Mm-hmm. And speaking of glamour and fascism. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> nice segue. I love it. Thank you. Um, uh, let's talk about the Nazis uh, in mo- in the movies. Why in the hell? Movies. Why are they so glamorous? Yeah. <laughs> why are they so glamorous and so high culture and so kind of arty or associated with the very cultivated senses? And, you know, you can you can even look at an actor like Conrad Veidt. Um, uh, um, who's that was just brilliant German actor who winds up fleeing the Nazis to in part to preserve partly because he hates them and partly because he's trying to save his wife who's Jewish, and he winds up in America playing Nazis. Just one of those ironies. And 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 says and someone asked he would get interviewed about this like how doesn't this strike you as kind of painful or ironic? And he'd be like, no, who better than me? I knew those bastards. <laughs> but he was very he projected a tremendous level of what. Not only authority, but of the cultivated intellectual man, the, the superior man. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very tall, kind of a high domed forehead by the time he gets to America and he's losing his hair anyway. Um, but everything about him seems to speak high culture. And you know, his most famous part is, is Major Strasser in um, Casablanca, but he played a bunch of Nazis. Um, and was regarded as kind of primo at it. And so he's a kind of template. And of course, he looks gorgeous in the, you know, in the admittedly artful Nazi uniform. <laughs> um, so so he, you can take him as a kind of template and go, go right to Ray Fiennes in Schindler's List. Or you can go, you can go all over the map and see see this figure dominating all over the place. And And very not nearly as dominating are the kind of, you know, kind of kind of lower class thugs that. They they tend to be kind of effaced and and um and it doesn't seem to be just in American films either, right? Right. Yes. It, uh, in the Italian, a lot of Italian neorealist neorealist films, um, mm-hmm. Rome, Open City comes to mind by it's, Rossellini. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Rossellini hired a, a gay German ballet dancer on purpose to play the sadistic mm-hmm. um, Nazi. Mm-hmm. Uh, God, what is he? What's his rank? Oh, I'm an, I'm an idiot. Officer? I don't know. He's an officer. Yeah. 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 And and it's always, it's easily, you know, at first I thought, okay, they do this because Americans can easily read moral perversion as Mm -hmm. like aristocratic sexual perversion. But, you know, because it's obviously. Especially because the woman, his woman, you know, whatever, the woman who's also working with him. Yep. um, Isn't there a gorgeous woman? She's clearly, you know, she, she's, she's a predatory lesbian figure. Right. She goes after the, you know, the vulnerable drug addicted, wealthy young woman, blah, blah, blah. You see all these scenes of where it's clearly they're crossing quote unquote sexual perversion with, yeah, the Nazi high command. 
Right. And, uh, you know, again, if this were an American film, it would make sense to me um, because these Mm -hmm. Nazis in Rome open city, not only are they gay, like obviously legibly homosexual, but they are, Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're listening to Schubert and they're drinking fine port or something smoking they're always cigars. calling for the cognac or something yeah. <laughs> always in fact ray fines does in one scene in schindler's list of course yeah, where's the cognac Have the cognac. yeah <laughs> in, a, in a crystal decanter my god you know yeah yeah you know they have a, like wonderful uh, you know aristocratic tastes um there are they are associated with high art and again if this were an american film that would make total sense americans are very suspicious of art um especially something that looks like high art you know mm-hmm. um but in an Italian context. And also partly for, out of insecurity. Europe is the, the land, you know, that really persisted, is the land of culture. And America is, you know, at best a striving imitator. But, you know, if we're being proud, no, we don't want any of that high pollutant stuff. Exactly. Exactly. But, you know, I mean, Italian, whatever, you know, um, neorealism obviously also Mm. has like a populist strain. And, Mm. you know, of course, these perverse uh, uh, aristocratic figures are being read against Anna Magnani's heroine, Mm. you know, and uh, Il Popolo, the people. And Mm. so the Italians, once again, look down to earth, human, approachable, Mm. joyous, and the Nazis look like depraved, you know, high art. They're they're Mm. Dandy aesthetic sense is associated with like a depraved morality or lack of morality. And there's often a token, like, you know, a non-officer figure who can be a a bit more thuggy. Right. (laughs) Like the one who's, you know, molesting Anna Magnani as she's waiting, you know, outside of a building, blah, blah, blah. There's a whole scene right before she's, well, I won't, spoiler alert, I don't want to ruin (laughs) Romance. But but it, it has much less impact than the high command dandy um, figure. And and I sometimes I wonder, does it just slot so nicely in an already existing villain kind of melodramatic villain slot where where the melodramatic villain, at least, you know, going back, if you go back to the beginnings of melodrama is almost always the aristocrat, the predatory aristocratic um, older male who has all the power in society um, and is, you know, trying to rape the servant girl. That's the plot of Pamela, the novel, and she has to persuade him in chapter after chapter not to <laughs> and then persuade him that she deserves to be respected and all that jazz You're and then so she right. marries him in the end it's so heartwarming <laughs> <I'm kind of laughs> uh, anyway but that figure is already so embedded in the culture um of the sinister slight somewhat dandyish high culture villain that that the, the, the nazi can just go right in there I, th- I think you're so right. That's totally it. Mm. We we could just end the episode. Um, no, really? Because I literally just thought of that before we started. <laughs> I was like, wait, is that kind of snidely whiplash kind of thing? No, that's... And, you know, just the love of the contrast of someone who's delicate and finicking in some way or kindly and who has some contrasting set of characters. Like, it's like the, what, the, the godfather, like, mafia figure petting the cat kind of thing. <laughs> being very nice to the cat <laughs> being soft and nice you're so right it seems like it's I, I, an available slot yeah well and i will say I, we're gonna admit neither eileen and i or i watched schindler's list oh god i can't, can't do it no. even watching scenes from schindler's list I oh just christ wanted, yeah so yeah. we haven't seen the film but from what i can what i can surmise from watching mm. the couple scenes is that that's mm. like isn't that also kind of the plot of schindler's list doesn't he pick like a, a shy jewish girl to be his maid and i don't yep. know what happens but it kind of looks like pamela uh, right? oh very rapey very there's a whole scene devoted to that yeah yeah okay yeah. great awful um yeah. so i think and you know he's he's ray fines and when he was young he was kind of 
effete and beautiful. And that was his whole yes. thing. Um, and so he becomes the perfect, you know, when he, there he is wandering out onto his gorgeous balcony and just shooting <laughs> randomly just for entertainment, shooting, you know, shooting down Jewish people in the concentration camp. You know, so he's, he's doing the, all that combination of beautiful being rafy, finey, <laughs> and, and, you know, being a thug, but combined in one disturbing figure. Yeah, totally. totally. And there's just the plain old associate, the horror association of all that high culture associated with being German. Yeah. And how, how are the mighty fallen or is it even fallen? You just can, you can draw a pretty straight line from Wagner, obviously, um, to the Nazis in part because he was Hitler's very favorite composer. He was a huge anti-Semite, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, but of course they also love Beethoven and they had a whole host of, of composers that they were way into. Mm-hmm. I mean, we talk about them as anti-art and I'm wondering if we don't mean they're, we're, that in some ways they're anti-good art because keep in mind, Hitler was an artist, a very failed artist. Well, yeah. I- and that they thought, they were cleansing the culture of bad dege- as Deviant, it, degenerate, degenerate art. Yeah, yeah, degenerate art, which was you know all either j- literally made by Jews or Jewish in its sensibilities. And and Hitler felt he had radar to tell <laughs> if you were thinking like a Jew. They hated all modernism, all modern art. You mm-hmm. know, so all the masterpieces they've toured around. Mm-hmm. You know, who are they? You know, Kandinsky. Uh, Chagall. I forgot about Chagall. That's so surprising. He's such a sweet little painter. The birds and lovers and all that. Oh, but it's <laughs> but very modern. Russian Jew. Yeah. And, and it's, it's too modernist. Jewish. And he's a Russian Jew. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a whole long list of just the among the most, you know, celebrated. You know, it's a great tour. It sounds like the degenerate art tour that they've done. All of that. Exactly. Um, as opposed to the the you know the 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 unins you know the uninteresting neoclassicism and monumentalism of of what the Nazis tended to love you know you know nice all very representational landscape again and all imbued very very forcefully with this you know the the ideology so really really boring art is what you wind up with as a rule yes and I think what they have in common with Trumpsters is a nostalgia for you know things yeah. were good back then you know when Hitler's mm-hmm. it, Hitler rises, Wagner's greatest works are 60 years old, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, 1870s, 1880s, stuff like that. So mm-hmm. looking back on Wagner is the same impulse as uh, Trump tweeting, um, you know, I didn't I, I didn't like Parasite. Why don't we make movies like Gone with the Wind again? You know, like <laughs> right, 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 it's right. the same <laughs> impulse, like, you know, make make mass art great again. So, yeah. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's so brilliant, though, about the the snidely mm. whiplash. The best. Yes, they do. They fit right into it. You know, what's, yeah. what's super interesting is, so I rewatched, because I could not take Schindler's List, I rewatched Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, um, <laughs> which also has Nazis. Um, and, and two things, Eileen, and maybe you can wait, you can tell me how this mm. squares with Powell and Pressburger. Um mm. So what was kind of interesting about Indiana Jones, which is also made by Spielberg, who made Schindler's List, is that um, obviously the Nazis are very bad, but by far the most sinister character is an American businessman. Mm-hmm. And he's the one who like enlists Indiana Jones to help him find the Holy Grail. Right. The movie's about finding the Holy Grail, and the Nazis right. want it too. Um, but so right. does this guy, and he's financing um, this expedition. And he is uh, he, much like a traditional Nazi as an American businessman. He's portrayed uh, kind of with an apartment like Dorian Gray's. He's got like oh, this, wow. yep, <laughs> he's got a statue of Buddha, some antique, some antiquities, you know, and some uh-huh. beautiful uh-huh. books, and a very a very gorgeous 
previously appointed um, apartment. Uh, and Indiana Jones takes place in the 30s. And mm-hmm. so anyway, um, but he's he, so what's interesting is he seems like an even bigger villain than the Nazis. Mm-hmm. And he um, chooses in a very famous scene. He chooses the wrong holy grail to drink out of and it makes him age and disintegrate before the eyes of the audience and right right yeah i remember yeah (laughs) face melter scene yes yeah because the idea is that Mm -hmm. if you find the holy grail and drink from it you can get eternal life and he wants eternal Mm -hmm. life and he has a lot in common with the female lead i forgot what her name is um the chick who plays elsa ilsa oh Right. Who is who's a very attractive uh, Nazi uh, Nazi um, archaeologist doctor who's made up to look exactly like Catherine Deneuve in The Hunger. Um, Oh, really? Yeah. I've got to watch this again. I don't remember this. Yeah. (laughs) And and that's relevant. The Hunger's a vampire movie um, because she again, all the all the bad people are on this quest for eternal life. And we're back to our vampire Dorian Gray figure again. Like if you're Mm. if you're into aesthetics there's something about um not aging and i don't know what that what that link is but ilsa mm-hmm. also drinks she actually drinks from the right cup but because oh. oh wait does she no she gets greedy and she wants to cross the great seal long story anyway mm. all of these freaks <laughs> they're all like seeking eternal life oh, and uh-huh. and like we're right back to kind of our vampire dorian gray thing and i don't know what mm-hmm. that link is but by mm. God, maybe someone can figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's an interesting wrinkle. Oh, I wish I'd thought of this before because now I'm, I can't think of how to connect it to any of the other movies we've got here. Well, I mean, is it? Yeah, it's almost like, uh, oh, I'm trying to connect it to something Sontag said about about not only, oh, oops, now I'm going to mess it up. But something like not only the, mo- the, the, the kind of movement, the mass movement, but there's also a kind of movement towards stillness or something. And it's almost like, are you trying to make of yourself a kind of time transcending statue of perfection? Is that something? Oh, that, that makes total that sense. Part of it. That makes total. Yeah. I love that. Like a kind of frozen monumentalism. Yeah, like that. I'll buy it. Good answer. Yeah. She's, <laughs> identif- she's identifying, I think, in Triumph of the Will and, and yeah, this contrast between the movement and the stillness. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Containment of vital forces. Um, movements are confined, held tight, held in. Interesting. Interesting. And it's, I mean, I'm totally wild. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But it's true. When you become like a vampire, you do become like a statue, right? You become an an objet d'art. You hang out in a coffin for a lot of time or whatever. And, um, and you're just, you're fixed in a kind of timelessness because you don't, you don't die. And you know, the Nazis did have that whole occult obsession, absolute obsession, obsession. Um, certain high command members that I think included Hitler. And, and so I think Rebels. they felt that they themselves were <laughs> a, you know, a transcend, a potentially transcendent people in that way as well. Yeah, that's right. And it is, I mm-hmm. mean, we, we should say like, there are serious art enthusiasts among the Nazis. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I think, yeah, absolutely. Which is, you know, really just obviously points to hypocrisy. Um, mm. But uh, I guess, and I guess to this figure of the Nazi villain villain in Hollywood films, that's kind of also pointing to the hypocrisy of the people who, you know, burn books and, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, slash art, but still secretly indulge in its perverse pleasures, I guess. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And, you know, you mentioned Paul and Pressburger and they, you know, they're a British, well, 
he was British, uh, Powell was British and, and um, Pressburger was Hungarian, but he worked in the German film industry before, again, he was forced out, mid literally a midnight phone call saying they're coming for you to catch the next train. <sighs> and, but he loved German culture. And one of the things that they, they came to fame and success as a screenwriting team, I mean, both screenwriting and directing and producing team, um, by making pro-British, you know, anti-Nazi propaganda films, that they were fictional films mostly. Yeah. Um, and so they were always portraying, obviously, German characters and the bad version of German characters, but they, they would get themselves into a lot of controversy by trying to, this was especially important to Pressburger, um, by trying to represent the good, the good, qual the good German. <laughs> um, and so they did this a lot and again, got a ton, a ton of flack <laughs> for it. Um, if you see Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, that's the one Churchill, Winston Churchill literally tried to stop um, when it was in development. Mm -hmm. um, because he felt it was so ruinous to to their cause and way, way, way too sympathetic for the um, for the German character played by the wonderful Anton Walbrook. Oh, wow. Um, but they did this repeatedly, sympathetic German character or sympathetic German little mini societies. Um, but they also would try to complicate another way. So, you know, the one film I was thinking of was, which was all about trying to persuade America to get into the war. It's called 49th Parallel. Um, it's all about that northern border of the United States, which, you know, was then just not guarded. <laughs> I mean, it was just <laughs> wide open. You could get yourself into Canada somehow or you could just come over. And that that's somehow I forget why getting into Canada was going to be maybe all of Canada was unguarded. I don't know. <laughs> but it was being presented as this is going to be how the Nazis come to you. They're going to basically bring a U-boat right up to the coast of, of Canada and just come over your border because um, you're not you're not you're asleep. You're the sleeping giant and you won't join us and you won't fight them. So they have a team of Nazis. There's five or six of them. They get in. They're following the border along, trying to get into America. But the lead figure is very much in that Nazi high culture formidable figure he's played by eric portman and the um that's a, an actor that they use several times to have to have to be these figures the magus figure who seems to have some sort of transcendent power some sort of transcendent brilliance um and so here they make him the the scarily superior um formidable nazi figure but hmm. underneath him there's a thug nazi there's a who's always going toward wanting to kill wanting to do violence and then there's the nice Nazi who was just a working class baker in his family's bakery. And he winds up trying to bail out. They come upon a German community, a German farming settlement. I forget what they call themselves, but they're entirely peace loving. Anton Wahlberg is there to be the good German again. <laughs> he yeah. leads, but in a kind of le leaderless leading way. It's totally democratic. It's a kind of utopian farming community to, sh to again show the not all Germans are bad. These are the good Germans, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. um, so there's all that kind of complicating factor, which, you know, it seems completely, none of that would even strike you if you were watching it now, but then it was very hot potato stuff um, to be even doing that. And in fact, Alfred Hitchcock gets into the same kind of trouble with Lifeboat, which is one of the films that does very badly because it's decided it's so controversial because it shows a German being more brilliant and more capable than anyone else in this lifeboat that's just been sunk by a German U-boat. Um, and the superior German seems like he's a working-class German. He's played by Walter Slezak, who is a, um, a really great Austrian um, actor. Um, but he, he was kind of running toward obesity at this time. He looks very working-class. And he's lying. He's actually the, 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 the captain of the boat that sunk their ship. Um, but he's so much smarter than them that he's just running rings around them for most of the movie until they finally have to, of course, all of these disparate figures 
you know, there's a society woman. Oh, well, actually, she's a columnist played by Tallulah, Tallulah. Bankhead in her greatest performance. <laughs> Later on, we'll do an episode, you know, driving you mad with way too much, you know, about Tallulah Bankhead. But <laughs> it's her greatest. There's many great performances. The great black actor Canada Lee is in it. You know, there's just Hume Cronin. It's, it's a great cast of characters from all walks of life who wind up in this lifeboat together. But they can't get their acts together. You know, it's it's and they're British and they're American. I forget they come from different places. They're from allied countries or, you know, this is a 1944 movie. And they're they're just no match for the for the for this Nazi mm-hmm. for the longest time. And so people just hated it. Oh, my God. People had such fits. It was based on a short story by John Steinbeck. He wound up disavowing the film and saying because it got to be so controversial. And, you know, Hitchcock had to go to the press to defend it. Tallulah Bankhead had to go to, or felt she had to go to the press to defend it. And it still did badly. They wound up only giving it a limited release because it was still wartime. Hmm. So you, at your peril, even tried to convey, you know, that, that, you know, the Nazis, there might be a reason the Nazis are a formidable (laughs) enemy that we were having real trouble defeating. But it also slots right into that, that even when they seem like they're starting off with a, a working class German who's not at all formidable, that's the role he's playing, is going to be revealed as the way smarter way more capable, way stronger um, figure, and, you know, just incredibly erudite, incredibly well able to argue against all of them. Mm -hmm. Um, So the super impressive figure, he he still winds up morphing into that by the end. I see. That's very similar to, uh, not in terms of the working class um, look, but even Christoph Waltz in Inglorious Bastards. Is, oh, right, right. He's always, he's far superior to the heroes of the film, who are the American Nazi killers led by Brad Pitt, um, right, right. As, a, as a sort of um, impressive killer, but, you know, like a big hick with kind of a Southern accent. And this is- Right, the- and so like, once again, you emphasize the incredible- erudite way with language he's mesmerizing you could just even you can just tell even while people are waiting to die you can't help but stare at him like wow it's amazing to listen to this guy talk yeah yes and he <laughs> there, there's that scene if you remember there's kind of like oh god what's her face um diana Mer- who's playing um oh yeah yeah marlena dietrich figure yeah, this is Google. terrible. I thought it's but... Kruger, Diane Kruger. Kruger, yeah, yes, yes, yes. she she plays like a Mar- 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 Marlena Dietrich. Dietrich, I cannot she can't get in the ring with Dietrich any day. But anyway, let's go. Like not even close. <laughs> um, but she's she's trying to hide these Americans and pass them off as Italians, including Brad Pitt, and yeah. to Christoph Waltz, who of course comes out with flawless Italian, and it, right, it, right, right. like and it's the multilingual thing is also in Lifeboat. The easy transition from german to english they always know all the languages but go ahead it's also in rome open city you know they speak both oh. both italian and german with with ease great ease right. you know right, right. yeah absolutely and he's all and he's you know he's running christoph waltz's character is running rings around them uh and they don't mm. understand a word of italian of course <laughs> even though they're being <laughs> imposing as italians um so it's yeah this is definitely it's definitely a trope and um i don't know what do you make of that though the fact are we does that you know from an american perspective is it Mm. just one more hallmark of american anti-intellectualism that and insecurity like sure our enemies may be intellectually more Mm. educated more educated or something but we have heart or we have god on our side or whatever so we'll prevail the hell does Mm -hmm. that mean 
Yeah, it's, it's so interesting because, again, there was such anti-intellectualism among the Nazis, and they were so, right. you know, if you're a real Jew, you're invested in the intellect. <laughs> we're all about the heart, but it, we did, did not absorb that. It could have come from, in part, too, sheer terror. The Nazis, come on. Everyone who watched Triumph of the Will was just like, holy shit. Very much. <laughs> it's true. There's no, what? They're very they organized. <laughs> You know, the very thing that the, 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 you know, the insurrectionists absolutely don't have, the Nazis absolutely have, which is just like row after row of perfectly uniformed and working in perfect unison and they're just, and torchlight you know, demonstrations. And it's just, was it all looks so terrifying that everyone was like, oh my God, what, <laughs> what are we going to do? <laughs> and, you know, is a fighting force absolutely terrifying in the first years of the war. So in part, it might just be a more direct reaction than we're giving them credit for. They must be brilliant. Mm-hmm. They, they, we, we might be running up against something we, we're, not, we're not ready to fight. We, we, we can't fight. Yes. Um, because they're terrifying. We want, maybe we wanted to, maybe there was an idea we have to attribute to them, like all the qualities of a terrifying opponent. And it can't be that they're a bunch of beer hall push you know, <laughs> clowns and thugs who somehow managed to get into power. That that doesn't make them seem formidable enough compared to what our experience is. Hmm. I, I think that's I'm a really guessing good around. point. No, I like I like that. I think that's a really, mm-hmm. really good point. Yeah. Um, and I th- yeah, you're so right. And I we we do have to give just like, I mean, there's the fact of German engineering and yes. organizational, oh you know, skill, which is, you know, mm-hmm. in a hallmark. Which is terrifying to this day. Yeah. Oh my God. I remember going to a film festival in Berlin. I never got a pack of information that was so <laughs> complete, thorough, beautifully or I it was scary. It was a work of art. It was a work of art. I was just like, oh my God. <laughs> Every cliche comes true. I it was amazing. And I was on a whole tour of film festivals, so I was like, oh my God. It was this terrifying stand-up. So yeah, I think that there's definitely that. You're up against just formidable efficiency and skill and focus and all of that, all of that stuff. Yeah. That, you know, often certainly now in America you don't feel like <laughs> you don't feel like. Uh, that you have it all yeah right <laughs> yeah as a culture right yeah. right so i don't know it'll be interesting to see if we if any world war ii films are made or if any nazi characters surface mm-hmm. after the trump era um mm. i wonder if any of these um things will change because certainly trump himself does not stand for erudition or taste Um, He's made Mm -hmm. his name, you know, his appeal is kind of for uh, representing a challenge to those things. Um, um, So I don't know. (laughs) Well, I guess he's the outsider. He serves, you know, McDonald's at the the big feast of McDonald's in the White House. Yeah. Yeah. So all of these kind of canny appeals to the people. He's the real outsider come to defend their interests and all that. And all that jazz. And you know, it's not like there isn't an alternative form. You know, you don't have to go. You don't have to go Nazi Germany to be <laughs> to be a terrorizing force. You could be a chaos force, which you know certainly we certainly see in superhero movies. So right, you know, right. And it's yeah. it, you know, I wonder if it. I mean, we so often. I, I think the American one of our many problems <laughs> is is identifying um, intellectualism or mm-hmm. even or art with the aristocracy, 
And mm. I mean, there are, re- of course, historical reasons for, you know, a good chunk of human well, history. Yeah. <laughs> right. The aristocracy funded <laughs> right. the arts. Get, get an education too, you know. Yeah. It was you know, a tiny sliver of people. Yeah. Exactly. But whereas I think other cultures have done more to embrace art as something for the whole country. And, you know, mm-hmm. this, this is evidenced by their uh, federal budgets. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, we've always been suspicious of the arts as something highfalutin, but we're, mm-hmm. we're the idiots who elect billionaires and think that they speak for the people. So mm. it's, you know, the aesthetics become completely divorced from like any kind of economic thing or attached to the wrong economic idea <laughs> or, mm-hmm. or, or the wrong idea of exploitation or not. And mm-hmm. I don't know, it's a, it's a long road to get us out of there. <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah, long, strange. And, and, and the, have the arts ever been more, mar- the, the fine arts, however we want to put them, have they ever been more completely marginal? No. To any culture. It just seems like they can't get much more marginal without disappearing off the edge of the flat earth or whatever. Good I God. mean, wow. At least for like the mid 20th century, for a moment, we had public television and you could see stuff, yeah. but we don't really have yeah. public television much anymore, you know, and it's certainly not funded the way it, it was up until the late 80s. Right. The funding is all dropped off. It just seems like it seems amazing that, you know, and, and as we that, that the ballet can survive, that opera can survive. And when you go to the opera, you know, as you, you encouraged me to do, and I did, you know, the, the average age is like <laughs> 70. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, it's white hair, gray and white hair everywhere you, where you look. And when that generation dies off, that was raised with the idea that you should mm-hmm. be, take an interest in the arts, mm-hmm. um, what's going to happen, you know? I, now, I mean, there, you know, every, as every nonprofit, certainly performing arts organization (laughs) will tell you visual arts is a little different because it's become associated with money uh, with rich people and and it's an investment you know to own visual art in a way that you know Mm. obviously going to the opera the ballet or the symphony is not um tech people don't give to the arts Uh, you know that's a generalization but it's an accurate generalization Mm. (laughs) um so it's not part of whereas with you know old money um, they, you know, they, they do, it's a value mm-hmm. of that particular class. Uh, the nouveau riche don't. Um, mm-hmm. and so, you know, that just is what it so is. So in We're a world of, yeah, of dead, dying, completely starving with underfunding arts, you know, we don't, where does the, you know, it's not to say that people can't still do art that can sort of arise in a grassroots manner, but it doesn't seem to be, I mean, maybe I'm uninformed, but it doesn't seem to be happening. So again, we keep coming back to this question. Like how, how do we harness, you know, arts, mass communication in, in a countervailing force? And we don't really have an answer. There doesn't seem to be an answer. No. Um, if you lived in another country, you would have a, f- a federal budget for it. Yeah, <laughs> but we you don't. can get your start, get some funding and get going. And now it's like, I don't know, how do you even, you can go to art. Obviously people go to art school here, <sighs> but what they do after they get out is all, yeah, <laughs> I know up to the, up to them. To, good luck with that kind of thing. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we're not, we're not. We're not in a, in a good position to really propose as we, we keep trying to propose and we don't propose <laughs> um, a kind of countervailing strong aesthetics because we don't have it. But, you know, one question I wanted to get to, and, you know, I don't think we either of us have the answer, but maybe, you know, maybe a listener will, is, you know, what are, are there examples of films where we don't have this, this syndrome of representation of fascists, of, of the, the superior, you know, superior intellect, high culture, cultivated dandy figures hmm. um 
and that would be interesting because we tr- sort of tried to think of them and we weren't really coming up with anything Mm-mm. as a dominant as a dominant image. Not like there aren't in- incidental characters, but that it, it doesn't seem like those are the leading figures. So I'm just curious about that one. Yeah, we'll open we'll open it up to the listeners for I mean, sure. God knows that we still keep making Nazi movies all the time. So <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> there's there's room there's availability to have an alternate view of of these figures. Yeah, yeah. So I should we wrap it up? I think we should. We're we're a little over, so let's wrap. Um, yes. So so I'll just quickly chime in with thanks, obviously, to all of our listeners, and especially to our marvelous subscribers. You're keeping us, you know, supplied with bourbon, etc. <laughs> we thank you so much. Uh, if you like what you hear, please consider signing up with um, with Patreon for all the film sub film suck content instead of just the half that you can get free. And just so you know what's coming up. Our next, um, the next written post that I'll be doing, which I do in alternate weeks, that's going to be posted on February 2nd, is a Groundhog Day tribute to Groundhog Day, the great you know, film starring Bill Murray, of course. Um, and then our next podcast episode is, uh, is um, coming out on the 9th of February, and the topic is Strice and Fonda, When Good Stars Go Bad. It's a very meaty, <laughs> meaty topic. We're not going to be oh, able to tell that to an hour. <laughs> Yeah, that's gonna be rough. Yeah, I might run a little long for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, and I should say it's, it's it's it was inspired because the Criterion Channel is featuring the work of both Barbara Streisand and Jane Fonda right now. So if you will be considering you know the respective artists, artistic and political journeys of these two very beloved and very derided stars who came <laughs> of age in our minds anyway at a very unfortunate time um, in cinema for women. Um, we're going to consider how they were shaped by their times, how their politics continue to be reflected in their artistic choices, or not. So queue up your Criterion um, channel free trial. It's important to note you can get a free trial. And we'll be back on February 9th with Babs and Jane. Until then, I'm Eileen Jones. And I'm Dolores McElroy. And, and we, we thank, thank you for listening to Film, Film Talk. Talk. <laughs> <laughs>